the gist is sponsored by Sherry's Berries. Treat your mom to something sweet this Mother's Day with fresh berries dipped in chocolate starting at $19.99. It's a great last-minute gift, and right now you could double your berries for just $5 more. Visit berries.com, click on the microphone, and use the code gist. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S.com and the promo code gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, May 6th. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Zoe Chase. Who am I? Why am I here? Shout out Admiral Stockdale. I'm The Gist's biggest fan. I am a friend of Mike Pesca. I once co-hosted a podcast called Planet Money. I'm now at This American Life. Mike is not here. He is not in the building. That means I'm in charge. I'm in the Slate studio. I am sitting in Mike Pesca's chair. I am drinking Mike Pesca's Diet Coke. I'm a tiny version of Mike Pesca for just today. And Mike told me to do whatever I want. So today I'm just going to get into what I'm into. You guys ready? On the show today, we have big podcasting news. There's been a major shakeup in the history of podcasting, the official history. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the economy, how it's secretly doing badly. And then Beyonce and Billie Holiday. So on Planet Money, which is NPR's economics podcast, we used to always start the shows the same way, which was with the Planet Money indicator. It was just one particular way of taking the temperature of the economy, and it was one of my favorite things we did. So I called up Jacob Goldstein. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Zoe. We miss you here. I miss you a lot. Um, Do you have a Planet Money indicator for me today, Jacob? I have a Planet Money indicator right here. <laughs> I and can this hear is actually it. the indicator. I'm not shuffling a fake piece of paper. There is a number written on this piece of paper. It sounds and it is so the real. You ready? <laughs> yeah. Today's no. Planet Money indicator six and a half. Six and a half. Go. The Federal Reserve has held short term interest rates at zero, at zero for six and a half years. This is why you come to the gist for the short term interest rate news. This is it. And this is big news. I mean, it's old news, right? It's six and a half years old. But the very fact of how old this news is, is why it blows my mind. You know, if you hear about the Fed and short-term interest rates at all, there's basically one story you hear in the news about this now. And it is, when is the Fed going to raise short-term interest rates? Is it going to be September? Is it going to be December? But like, I actually don't care about the answer to that question, right? Like, I don't, I don't know, I don't trade interest rate derivatives, interest rate futures. So, like, I don't care if it's September or December. What I want to You're talk not, about like, is... mildly curious when it's going to happen? No. Just like, as a I'm sporting man? Okay. No, doesn't matter. Okay. No, because the thing is, I feel like that obscures this actually really interesting, really big fact, which is what it means that interest rates have been so low for so long, right? It's not just like the Fed making some arbitrary choice. And can we just explain, like, why the Fed did this in the first place? Like, basically, when the economy is really bad, like it was six and a half years ago, the Fed lots of times does this thing where they lower the interest rate a lot, and that just means, like, it's cheaper to borrow money, right? They're trying to make money available to people so that companies will hire, so people will go out and spend money, and generally just kind of speed the economy back up. Like, that's the basic idea of why you would lower the interest rate in the first place, right? Exactly. And the Fed does this 
every time there's a little recession, every time there's, you know, an economic cycle. And what normally happens is they lower the interest rate. As you said, people start borrowing money, hiring workers again. And then usually people start getting raises. They start uh, uh, paying more for goods. The prices of things go up. And then you start to see wages going up and inflation going up. And then the Fed raises interest rates to kind of get things back to normal, right? And that get things back to normal part, that has not happened yet. Six years later, six and a half years, it's still not normal. And it's not normal anywhere, right? Like, what about in Europe? Don't we have, like, negative interest rates in Europe where banks are actually paying people to borrow money? Interest rates are so low. Yeah, Europe is is even even worse, basically. The European economy is even worse than the U.S. And it's like interest rates there have gone haywire, right? Like, people are giving governments their money and saying, hold on to my money and, and give me a little less, you know, in 10 years. I'll give you 100 bucks now. You give me 98 bucks 10 years from now. So that sounds bad, right? If interest rates have been zero for all this time here in the U.S., they're basically negative now in Europe that means the economy is not speeding up. That means the economy is staying where it was, or they'd raise the interest rates to slow it down. Yeah, and it means really it's like this massive vote of no confidence in the future, right? Because if you believe at all that things are going to be all right, you know, five years from now, three years from now, 10 years from now, you'll be going out and taking out a loan and, you know, whatever, building a new factory or hiring more workers. If you're a bank, you'll be, you know, lending it out to lots of businesses. And the fact that even in this context of really low rates, Banks aren't lending that much. People aren't borrowing that much. People aren't hiring that much. It suggests that people still, 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 after all this time, after years of recovery, still don't really have confidence in the in the future of the economy. Yeah, people are scared of the future. But you know, Jacob, like when I read economic news, a lot of times I get this weird kind of whiplash feeling because there there is good news in the economy, it seems like. Like the unemployment rate is 5.5%. That's really low. That's a big improvement. And you see the economy adding hundreds of thousands of jobs every month. But you're telling me there's this kind of secret bad economy behind that. So how do you square that? Like, what does it mean when there's, like, also a lot of good news, but behind it maybe the news is bad? Like, explain that. So so you mentioned a couple of of key numbers in there, right? The first one is how many jobs are getting added every month. And that one has been really good. Uh, Most months recently, it's been hundreds of thousands of jobs. That is great. That is exactly what we want. The other number you mentioned is the unemployment rate. And that one is a little trickier, right? Yes, the unemployment rate is low now, right? It's, it's what is it, 5, 5.5%. But there are really important things you don't see in that number, right? You don't see people who have given up looking for work. Uh, they're not counted. Uh, you don't see people who are, uh, who are working part-time but want to be working full-time. They're, they're just counted as, as having jobs. And so, so the key thing that has not happened yet in the U.S. is wages have not started going up, right? If you go back to that normal recovery, mm-hmm. right, businesses start hiring again. Once, once most people are working, then workers can start asking for and getting raises, right? So the thing that will finally... Uh, that'll finally make things feel like they're getting back to normal. The thing, frankly, that'll finally make, uh, that'll finally probably push the Fed to raise interest rates is when workers can actually start asking for raises and getting them. When wages start to go up, that's when, that's when things will finally feel solid. 
short-term interest rates kind of a big deal. Huge. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Zoe. Hey, berries. We got berries. We got Sherry's berries. Sherry's berries are one of the best deals going. I mean, normally it's a good deal, but this is even super normal. It's $19.99 for a bunch of giant freshly dipped berries. And then for $5 more, you get double the bunch. Bunch is a technical term. It's agricultural. Mother's Day is coming up. You can't go wrong with these berries. They're covered in chocolate. They It could be white chocolate or milk chocolate or dark chocolate. Some of them, that white chocolate has a little decorative swizzle. It sizzles with swizzle. They got nuts on the berry, here's the deal. It's a very good deal. You can use the offer code GIST for $5 more. You could double the amount of berries that you normally get or that you normally ship to your mom in a stay fresh package that's amazing to open. She'll love you for it. Go to B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top corner and type in GIST. Go to berries.com, click on the microphone and enter my code GIST. This week, as you know, this is the year anniversary of the gist. This is a very big deal around here at Slate. It's a major holiday. This is the year of the podcast. That is all anyone seems to be talking about. Like, everyone just found out about podcasts. Slate has this panoply network, which just started but already has, like, a zillion podcasts. There's Alex Bloomberg, a famous podcaster, used to be a man of one, now is a man of at least three podcasts and growing. There's Serial, probably the biggest podcast ever. And it is perhaps inevitable in this moment that someone would step in and say, I invented this. I invented this whole idea. I am responsible for this entire medium. You're welcome. And a guy did, in fact, raise his hand and say, yeah, I invented podcasting. That was me. I started this. And the patent office has responded. The patent office has finally made this big decision about who owns podcasts, who owns the patent on the very thing that you are listening to right now. I have been following this story for a while. And so here on the anniversary of The Gist, my very favorite podcast, I want to tell you what went down. The story starts back in the mid-90s, which is long before the first podcast. But there was something similar back in the day. Cassette tapes. This is an audio magazine. And this is how it worked. You would sign up with this company. The company was called Personal Audio. And they would send you a cassette tape in the mail. And you used it like you use a podcast, except you use a Walkman. So you take the cassette, you put it in the Walkman, you'd go running, you'd press play. You'd have to flip it over after 30 minutes. And after about 60 minutes, like, that was the end of the cassette. Welcome to Amazing, the best of popular science. Brought to you by Magazines on Tape your new audio information source. Hello, I'm Steve Lavelli. Coming up, answers to some questions you have probably wondered about. What happens in your head when you have a headache? The guy who made the cassette back in the late 90s, his name is Jim Logan. And the cassette that that I just played for you, this is the low-tech version of what Jim really wanted to do. Jim Logan's big idea was that one day you would not need a cassette player. You'd be able to hear smart people talking about whatever subject you wanted to hear about. And then that audio would be magically downloaded to an electronic device. 
to me back then it was just this audio player that could interact with the internet and, and your preferences to pull down to your personal player all the personal stuff that you wanted to listen to. Um, it has come to pass that you know we didn't use these words back then, but the idea of you know downloading playlists to your audio player and podcasts are, are how the world's kind of gotten around to actually implementing those ideas. What the smartphone does today. Like the smartphone does today, right. In 1996, the man had this idea. And he does what some people do, some idea people, uh, when they think of something like this. And he, does what some, and he does what idea people do in that situation. He submits a patent for what he calls a system for disseminating media content representing episodes in a serialized sequence. Serialized. In 1996, the man was already using the word serial. So jump forward 15 years or so, podcasting is just starting to get big. And Jim Logan, master of the audio cassette, says, wait, I invented that, that thing that you are all listening to on your iPads. That was my idea. I invented podcasting. So what he and his company, Personal Audio, decided to do was to make everyone who was podcasting pay him some money. He sued Adam Carolla. He sent threatening letters to Joe Rogan, to the people at The Nerdist, to this guy. This letter is sitting on my desk. You know, it's sitting on my friend Sam's desk. It's sitting on other people's, other podcasters' desk. And all of a sudden, you know, we're terrified. We might have to stop podcasting. We might have to go broke trying to protect ourselves from this. Mark Marin, And... Right there, that is, that is pretty much where I left this story a couple years ago. There were a bunch of podcasters freaking out. Like, people would not talk to me for this story when I was reporting on it for Planet Money. They were too scared that they would get sued. I had to run the whole story past NPR's lawyer so that we wouldn't get sued. I remember I had to go home from my house after I was already done filing the podcast to change something so we wouldn't get sued. But last month, 2015, the Patent Office made this big decision. The podcasting patent was bullshit. Is that bullshit? Yes, that's bullshit. See, it's the gist. We're still on the gist. Don't worry. The patent was bullshit. It should never have been issued in the first place. The patent is invalid. Nobody in particular owns podcasting. This was a big victory for the podcasters. Like, we can do whatever we want. And one of the guys responsible for the victory is this dude, Daniel Nazer. He works for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I called him up. I'm the Mark Cuban chair to eliminate stupid patents. That's your job. That's my job title. That's on your business card? It, it is on my business cards, indeed. These guys have been fighting to get this patent eliminated for a year and a half. So I asked him about it. How did you finally take down the king of the cassette player? So one, one of the examples we found was from all the way back in 1994, and it was a show called Geek of the Week by Carl Malamud, and he interviewed a technologist or an internet policy person every week and distributed that over the internet. How do you pronounce your name? Hauser. Hauser. Is that right? No, that's not right. Try it again. Hauser. 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 Am I right? No. Still wrong. What else did you find? We found uh, a pilot program from the CBC in Canada. They had a science show called uh, Quirks and Quarks. Quirks and Quarks. And we also found a, a pilot program of distributing CNN online. So that was actually television. And 
that did the trick. It showed that Jim Logan was not, in fact, the first person to think of putting serialized content in an episodic form on the Internet. And what was funny to me is, like, you might think in the modern day that this would be a super easy case to prove because we have the Internet and you can just Google, like, podcast pre-1996. But the Internet that you have to look at to prove this case is the pre-1996 Internet. And this is, like, the lost age of the Internet. There is no record of that time. Like, the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archive, that actually didn't start archiving until a few weeks after Jim Logan filed his patent, a few weeks after October 2nd, 1996. So it was really hard for Daniel Nazer. It took him a while to go back and find the old podcast. I guess I want to know, in a bigger sense, like, how often people challenge patents? How successful can people be at challenging patents? Like, how big a deal is it that you guys got a patent invalidated yeah, in the first place? It's, it, it's an interesting question. So there, there are about a thousand of these reviews filed last year, I think. Um, a thousand? That and, seems like yeah, a lot. It does, but there were about 300,000 patents issued. So Just in the last year? That's right. It can feel a little bit like trying to clean a beach by sort of cleaning one grain of sand at a time. The the volume of, of patents being issued is so high. But um, once you do challenge, people have had a lot of success. The success rates are, are, are quite high, like 70 or 80 percent. That is crazy, I think. Like when I heard that, I was really shocked because... That means to me, if you challenge a patent at the patent office as like, this is an obvious idea, we already knew that, you don't own that idea, anyone could think of that, there's about a 75% chance that you will win that argument. And that just says there are too many patents on obvious things. There is no way the odds should be like that. I called the Jim Logan people for a response. They didn't get back to me by the time we started recording this. But I do know what they would say, which is that the patent system incentivizes people to invent stuff, gives them a way to make money off their ideas, even if he's not the guy who builds the iPod himself. And in fact, this whole thing is not over. The patent office deal is an appealable decision, and the personal audio people say that they are going to appeal. They want some of the sweet stamps.com money. So the next move is the Electronic Frontier Foundation is going to go to federal circuit court because this, this is a powerful argument. And now... A spiel. A spiel of my own. I like to make mixtapes for people, and I made one for Mike when he was leaving NPR for Slate. I make them on Spotify, the streaming music app, but I've noticed recently that my mixtapes have been changing. Like, this is from a mixtape from the middle of last year. Just before my 33rd birthday, this is this is the first song. Because you know I'm all about that bass, about that bass, no trouble. I'm all about that bass, about that bass. And this no is one trouble. from this year. I just made this back in January. 
like I'm suddenly going backwards from Meghan Trainor to Mariah Carey, which is not necessarily a sinister thing. But then there was this study that came out recently from the Spotify people. They dove into the Spotify data and analyzed it and crunched it, and they discovered this fact, which they announced. You turn 33 and you start suffering from something called taste freeze. This is a condition that begins at the bottom of your early 30s, so 33, and it affects you for the rest of your life. Taste freeze. You stay where you are. In my case, I stay at Beyonce, which is great. You also turn backwards. In my case, that would be turning to the 90s. And there are a couple of reasons for this that, that they talk about. At 33, you become more nostalgic, which I didn't even know was possible. But I think it is happening. And partially it's because the Spotify guy told me your brain is like full at this point. There is no more storage space for the new music. There is so much Fuji's and Britney Spears and NSYNC and Jay-Z. There is like no more room on your shelf. And the other thing that they told me, which really made me sad, was that at 33, you have experienced all the emotions. There are no first emotions left to experience. If you go through a breakup, odds are you're going to listen to this. Instead of this. Oh, won't you stay with me? Because the first time you broke up, it was probably via a Boys to Men song. Listening to the Spotify guy, it reminds me of this thing Chris Rock said once, which is, whatever music was playing when you started getting laid, that will be your music for the rest of your life. So I'm old. Like, I'm old on my way to older which is fine. Like, I like getting older. I don't mind. I have Beyonce. But there's this weird next step, this kind of logical conclusion that this terminal condition kind of drives you to, this weird next step that a lot of people take, which is to be contemptuous of the music of today, to be scornful about it, like whatever it is. That is the next thing that happens after you turn 33 and you run out of space to absorb the new music. And I know this because I've seen it. Most people have. I have parents. A lot of people do. And when I was growing up, this is the music that I listened to in the car. Billie Holiday is what my dad grew up listening to when he was a teenager. That's what was playing. And I remember one day in the car, I was like, Dad, I want to play you this tape that my friend Sabrina Tamraz made for me with all these new songs on it that I really like. Yeah, sending this one out to my man Killer B. No doubt, indeed, without we. This is Mob Deep. I was just learning about hip-hop, and I remember my dad said something like, I just, this is not music. I cannot hear this. There's a war going on outside, no man is safe from. You could run, but you can't hide forever from these streets that we done took. You 
The idea that Mob Deep isn't music, obviously we all know that is not a true statement. Not then, not today. That extra step, that is something that today's 33-year-olds, they should not take. You don't have to disown the music of today just because you're settling into Beyonce. Like, I never, I never want this to happen to me. I'm so afraid of that, of suddenly having this switch turn on where I just am so disdainful of today's music. That would be so sad. Like, I always used to know what the top song was in the country, and I don't really know anymore, and that might be because I'm 33. And that meant that I almost missed out on the rise of Fetty Wap. Uh, I'm like, hey, what's up, hello? Since you're pretty ass, soon as you came in the door, I just want to chill, got a sack for us to roll. Fetty Wap. This song is called Trap Queen. It is one of the number one songs in the country. Fetty Wap is a fascinating character. He is a rapper from Patterson, New Jersey. He has this mysterious one eye, which he wouldn't talk about for weeks. And then it turned out he did talk about it, and he had glaucoma when he was little, which wasn't that exciting. But Fetty Wap, Trap Queen, this is a great song. Trap is this music. It's like a style of music that I didn't know much about. And the answer to, like, why didn't you know about Fetty Wap, which is something that somebody might ask you if, say, they're 30 or 31 or 32, is not like, oh, I'm old. Like, I'm old. I'm not cool. I don't know. That's not an excuse. Now you know. You're 33 or above. You are at risk of missing out. Like, when you hit that age, whatever it is that you're supposed to get your prostate checked, when you're supposed to get a mammogram every year, Like, pay attention. You might be missing the top songs in the country, which means you might be missing out on Fetty Wap. Do not let this happen to you. And that's it for today's show. I have a couple song dedications for the dedicated production staff here at Slate. For just producer Andrea Salenzi, who is also out this week for five seconds. For managing producer Joel Meyer, see you again, was Khalifa. Executive producer Andy Bowers, Uptown Funk. Tomorrow on the show, we'll be joined by Sean Ramaswarm, a producer at WNYC Studio 360. He also hosts this great podcast, Sideshow. He's going to talk with the curators of a museum that celebrates Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding, the rival figure skaters. And Sean will also be talking to God. His guest will be God. This is what he told me. If you're looking for me, you can find me on This American Life. For Mike Pesca, I'm Zoe Chase. Thanks for listening. I'm Gretchen Rubin. On this week's episode of Happier, we'll talk about making the positive argument and the question that will help you to know yourself better, which is, are you a simplicity lover or an abundance lover? You'll find Happier at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm.